Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome Dr. Tom Frieden, CEO of Resolve to Save Lives and former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He talks about the recent announcement on an overhaul of the CDC to address failures in our U.S. response to COVID and now monkeypox. CDC has had real challenges. In the prior administration, CDC's advice was undermined, maligned. Lori Robertson joins us from factcheck.org and we end with a bright idea. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinton. Big changes are on the horizon at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as the National Institute of Health, as we continue to face COVID and monkeypox challenges. The CDC is looking to do a better job protecting Americans, and Dr. Anthony Fauci officially announces his departure. Here to discuss these topics is the former director of the CDC, Dr. Tom Frieden. He's currently the president and the CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, a nonprofit focused on making the world safer from epidemics. Dr. Frieden, thank you for joining us again on Conversations on Healthcare. Delighted to be here and look forward to the conversation. Oh, that's great. You know, let's start with the news that Dr. Anthony Fauci will leave his role as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease in December. And President Biden said he has touched all American lives with his work. The United States is better, stronger, more resilient because of him. He's your friend. You've worked with him for a long time. Talk a little bit about his legacy and also maybe what type of person or experience should be looked to uh, to fill this important role. I first met Tony in the 1980s when I was taking care of AIDS patients in New York City, trying to get people into clinical trials. And then I worked very closely with him during the Ebola epidemic of 2014 to 2016 in West Africa. And I really got to know Tony and his commitment to uh, the public, to public health, being focused on what's the right thing to do and being able to communicate that very effectively. It's unfortunate that over the past few years, so many things, whether it's masks and vaccines or Tony mm -hmm. Fauci, have gotten partisan and political. Tony has advised seven presidents. He was very close to both Presidents Bush, to President Reagan, to Presidents Clinton and Obama. And Tony tells it like it is. He doesn't sugarcoat things. Unfortunately, at this point, just stating a fact like hydroxychloroquine doesn't work may be seen as a political statement when it's really not. In terms of what comes next for NIAID, this is one of the larger institutes within the National Institute of Health. Tony has played much more than that role because of his influence with the White Houses, because of his influence with both houses of Congress, with both sides of the aisle. And I think the next director will have the challenge of recognizing that that role may be much smaller than the various roles that Tony Fauci was playing. Well, we certainly share your uh, your positive assessment of Dr. Fauci. Remember him so well from the early days of the uh, AIDS epidemic. But you led the CDC from 2009 uh, to 2017, and we certainly have followed uh, with interest now the uh, the news that a review team uh, was picked who interviewed about 120 agency staff and key external stakeholders. And we understand that you were one of the experts that they spoke with. Can you share with us what some of your sort of key recommendations and uh, guidance would have been uh, when you were interviewed by them? I look forward to seeing the full report. I think you have to really divide problems intrinsic to CDC and problems extrinsic to CDC. And um, you can't sugarcoat the problems that are intrinsic, but you shouldn't paper over the problems that are extrinsic. 
So CDC is dealing with a public health system around the US where state and local health departments have been underfunded for decades. It's also dealing with a healthcare system that's very fragmented. If you look at countries like uh, the United Kingdom, Israel, they have very coherent healthcare systems. So it's much easier to get reporting and figure out what's going on with whether it's COVID or monkeypox. Also within the federal government, CDC has had real challenges. In the prior administration, CDC's advice was undermined, maligned, sidelined. And even in this administration, by insisting that most or all of the media be done with the White House, you've seen an increasing polarization of attitudes towards CDC. And though most of the media talks about how CDC has lost the public trust, and it's certainly true that the trust levels are substantially down. When I was there, it was uh, the second or third most trusted federal agency, the Mint uh, always did the best in that in that rating, but it's been primarily among Republicans. A big drop in trust among Republicans. That partly is a reflection of the partisanship that has infected uh, the response to COVID. But there are also intrinsic problems at CDC, and these are things that have been there for a while. It's very important to emphasize that although those problems are real, it's also real that there are thousands and thousands of dedicated public servants at CDC, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, veterinarians, who have devoted their lives to public service. And they still are some of the most knowledgeable and committed people uh, anywhere in the world. And the key is to ensure that CDC has the wherewithal to refocus on protecting Americans and the world from health threats. Many of the recommendations we've heard about make a lot of sense. Focusing on quicker action, more practical recommendations. And one of the things that will be very important in doing that is knitting together the federal, state, and local levels by having a big increase in the number of people who are CDC employees but on loan to state, city, or local health departments. And then after two, three, four, or five years, may rotate back to Atlanta. This is a way of aligning perspectives. It's a way of getting more people at CDC who understand what it takes to get the job done at the local level. You know, the current head of the CDC is Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who has discussed the review. And we want to unpack what's been reported and get your reactions. And first, They'll create a new executive team to set priorities and make decisions about how to spend their annual $12 billion budget with a focus in on public health impact. I'm wondering, do you think that's going to work? Do you think that's going to help? Uh, Congress can have input on that. How do you think that's going to work? Well, the, the truth, sad or not, is that CDC does not set its own budget. Congress sets its budget in 150 plus different budget lines. And the director or the executive team have very little uh, latitude to change that budget mm -hmm. in any way. In fact, when I was CDC director, I was struck by the fact that as New York City Health Commissioner, a post I also held for uh, about seven and a half years, I had literally 20 times more flexible dollars than I did as CDC director. So part of this is Congress increasing the amount of cross-cutting funding that CDC has so CDC can focus on maximizing public health impact. Uh, CDC is a large organization. There have been a few different attempts to have it uh, run in a streamlined way. When I got there, there were something called coordinating centers. I disbanded those. 
I created deputy directors to oversee a, a cluster of uh, centers. As with NIH, you have many different entities within the larger organization. The most important thing is that those entities function well in their own areas. Then there are some adjacencies that can be achieved. And the more Congress gives cross-cutting funding, the more CDC can focus on protecting people against the biggest threats. The other thing that I think is an important direction that was outlined was focusing more on public health, more on rapid uh, response. One of the implications of the fact that there aren't that many people who have spent a few years on the front lines, some people at CDC and some of the culture there that's risk averse, that would rather delay a decision than make a decision that may be wrong. And that gets back to communication, because ultimately a lot of whether CDC is successful at regaining trust, and it has lost trust of the American people, is how well it communicates, how well it says consistently, based on what we know now, here's what we're recommending. This is why we're recommending it. This is what we don't know and what we're doing to try to find it out and really talk through the details. People uh, often ask me, do I miss being CDC director? And the honest truth is no. But one thing I do miss is the ability to call up any of thousands of scientists who are the world's experts in their area. And that's a precious resource. And whether that's monkeypox or polio or viruses like COVID or tuberculosis or environmental poisonings or what's causing heart attacks and strokes in this country and around the world, that's a wonderful resource. And the key is to translate that knowledge into practical, rapid action. Well, Dr. Frieden, the kind of timely communication that uh, may help regain the public's trust, of course, depends on communicating efficiently inward. And uh, we uh, understand that the review has indicated that two scientific divisions will now report directly to Dr. Walensky's office. And that seems to be a change that's aimed at speeding up the delivery of data. Uh, when you ran CDC, was slow data delivery an issue? And does that really change internally as CDC, or is that a function of the, the massive network of local and state health departments out there? Well, there are a couple of questions in there. One of them is about data. And yes, uh, slow data is a big problem. It's a big problem that's not going to be quick to fix. Uh, it's a reflection of weak local health departments, weak information systems in the healthcare system, and uh, an approach at CDC that sometimes is not as efficient as it needs to be. To be really frank with people, this is not gonna get fixed overnight. This is going to take years to fix. But if you focus on the most important information and getting that information in and out quickly, understanding that done is better than perfect, this is a really important concept. I think part of the challenge is now there's kind of a gotcha attitude towards CDC. Oh, you made this mistake. And CDC needs to be comfortable saying, based on the best information we have today, this is what we believe. This is what we're recommending. This is why. And that may change as we get more information. And getting that kind of expertise and recognition, that's very important. The other part of your question has to do with direct reports to the CDC director. Um, I actually created the, the laboratory unit because I recognized that there was weakness in the oversight of our laboratories. And I do think making that unit stronger, particularly because of the really serious mistake that happened early in the pandemic with the laboratory test, you need to have much more control over the laboratories and that office needs to be more powerful. 
There are lots of ways to do it, but I do think that office needs to be even stronger. You know, speaking of being frank, I'm wondering if you can give us an assessment about Dr. Walensky in terms of her ability to make these changes. What are the qualities that she possesses to make her that leader? And what are the limitations that she has that she may need uh, assistance or to be focused in on? Well, I'm not there now. And so I, I don't want to second guess. The, the amount of pressure she's under really can't be underestimated. She's coming into an agency at the time of the worst pandemic in 100 years with staff who have really been beaten down for a few years. They've been working really hard, yeah. but not recognized. A lot of great work done, not appreciated. And uh, a lot of challenges through the federal government, Congress, through the country. So it's a very difficult position. And I think the key will be to enlist in this very appropriately directed effort, people within CDC who understand the need for change, who've been working hard, who are dedicated to public health and public service, and who will be the only way that this succeeds, is if you bring the people along with you. And I think that'll be crucially important. Well, Dr. Frieden, I, I have to say that I, I was shocked by what you said earlier, that Congress actually sets all those line items of, of the budget for CDC, uh, which seems like a very bad idea when we never know what the next thing is that's coming. And did that, uh, do you think, contribute to some of the issues around what we're seeing? And I know we may talk uh, more in a minute about monkeypox uh, or even COVID, about the ability to pivot on a dime uh, and put your energy and your resources where you need to. I do think that the fragmented budget of CDC is a big part of the problem, because what it means is that the incentives within CDC are to work within your narrow area, one of more than 150 areas. Only in the last couple of years, Congress has begun providing cross-cutting funding in substantial amounts, and that's very important, and that needs to continue. Furthermore, it's crucially important that there be sustained funding for public health, Public health has worked in kind of a boom and bust mentality. There's an emergency, billions of dollars come in, they need to be spent quickly. It'd be better to get less money, but more stable money, rather than get $5 billion to spend in a year. If you had $4 billion to spend over four years, that would actually do much more good. And that's why whatever mechanism, the ideal would be that Congress would identify certain budget lines that are required for our country's health defense, and then take those budget lines out of the budget dance. Let them be funded by Congress based on an accurate assessment of need without having to rob Peter to pay Paul, without having to cut Head Start or Alzheimer's research to fund something that could save thousands or millions of American lives. That kind of reliable, sustained funding will be very important to avoiding the kind of vulnerabilities that we've had for COVID and other health threats. You know, speaking about uh, the threat of COVID, we've had uh, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Topol, Otez, many others who've been on the show have all talked about the next pandemic as well, that this isn't the, the last pandemic we're gonna face. And I'm wondering, what your thoughts are about the bipartisan call on Capitol Hill for an independent COVID-19 commission modeled after the 9-11 commission. Uh, wh where do you stand on that, that idea or, or how do we analyze what we've just gone through so we can be better prepared for the future? I think it's very important. There needs to be a clear look. More than a million Americans are dead. Yeah. And if the US had a death rate of Canada's, for example, 
most of those people would still be alive. What went wrong? But more importantly, what do we need to change so that preventable deaths like this never occur at this level? You know that the U.S. is an outlier. If you look at death rate per 100,000 people in high-income countries, the U.S. has a much higher rate than most other countries. And that's not something where the U.S. should be number one. And this kind of review is very important. I became CDC director after 9-11, and we looked really carefully at the 9-11 Commission recommendations. And those recommendations changed the way government does business. Did they fix everything? No. Did they make it better? Absolutely. And there's also kind of a reckoning so that uh, people who want to know the truth can know what really happened, what went right, what went wrong. Well, Dr. Friedland, uh, we still obviously are in COVID, but uh, the global monkeypox outbreak didn't wait for the COVID pandemic to be over. That's arrived on our doorsteps, and we're very engaged in the response to that in our own state. But there's been uh, criticism from the former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, uh, that CDC had once again failed to expand testing fast enough in the early days of monkeypox. And I wonder if you agree with that criticism and uh, generally, if you'd like to comment on how we're doing in responding to the monkeypox uh, epidemic. But what are your thoughts on that? There's a real commonality between the challenges we're facing in COVID, in monkeypox, and also in the polio transmission in New York and elsewhere. And it has to do with community engagement and building of trust is absolutely essential. When it comes to monkeypox, this is overwhelmingly spread among men who have sex with men. And it's really important that local, city, state, federal, and global public health agencies work very, very closely with community members, community leaders, sharing information, sharing resources, prioritizing vaccines, treatments, diagnostics to those who are most at risk, and doing everything possible to control the outbreak. We are seeing a reduction in cases in some countries in Europe, maybe a reduction starting in the U.S., but we have a long way to go and we don't have enough vaccine. Uh, that's something else that should be looked at that was under a different part of the federal government that was taken away from CDC. Uh, the vaccine that is available is being sent out in ways that are, are not very efficient. So that's something that we need to look at. But right now, the key is to engage communities. For example, we need to go to this fractional dosing approach. You get five times as many people vaccinated. Are we happy that we have to do that? No, but work with community leaders, work with community members, get the vaccine out as quickly as possible and see if there are people within those communities who may be able to carry the message that until you've been a recipient of two doses of vaccine, you might wanna limit the number of sexual partners to people with whom you're having uh, uh, an ongoing relationship to reduce the number of anonymous partners, because that's how this is largely spreading. And to provide clear information that monkeypox uh, is really uncomfortable. We haven't had deaths yet in this country. There have been deaths globally, but even people who are only mildly ill from it feel pretty miserable for weeks. And you don't want that spreading. We hope it won't uh, spread uh, for a long time or to a lot of society, but we don't know what will happen? It's spread through intimate contact, which means that people who are other than men who have sex with men are not immune from it. A similar thing happening with polio. You see very low vaccination rates in some communities. Unless there's engagement with those communities and building of trust, it's going to be very difficult to control. And that's the case in upstate New York, 
as it is in Afghanistan and Pakistan and elsewhere around the world where polio sadly continues to spread. You know, criticism c continues to follow CDC. It's loosened its COVID guidelines for isolation and testing in schools and ended a previous recommendation that students quarantine if exposed to someone positive for the virus. And it said that schools should no longer conduct routine COVID testing for asymptomatic or unexposed students. What's your take on this? The, the situation now is really very different than what it was before. And I will say I've been very consistent about this since March of 2020, that we need to keep the schools open and functioning because uh, it doesn't make that much difference in terms of spread of COVID. And it makes a huge difference in terms of not just educational outcome, but social development, economy, and other things. So working to keep schools open and functioning as normally as possible is extremely important. I think CDC is in a position where whatever it recommends, there are going to be people saying too stringent, not stringent enough. That's why communication is so important. So it's not just a recommendation put on the web, but a one hour press conference with the top CDC experts in COVID, in schools, in transmission, in contact tracing and testing to answer every question the media has. Why did you make these recommendations? What are they based on? And ultimately their recommendations school districts and state, local city health departments will make their own determinations. And the more CDC lays out why it's saying those things, the more consistency there will be. Understanding that different communities may with all validity come up with different conclusions. They may decide we want masks or we don't want masks. We want them in this situation or not in that situation. But at least it should be explicit about what you're doing, recognizing that the COVID situation today is really very different. COVID, the virus, is hitting a wall of immunity from both prior infection and from vaccinations. And that prior immunity, although it doesn't protect very well from getting infected, does protect a great deal from getting severely ill and hospitalized and dying. And that transforms COVID from something that was much deadlier to something that's much less deadly. Second, we have great vaccines and apparently very effective treatment with Paxlovid. And that also transforms this uh, pandemic to something that's much more manageable. We also understand how to control it more. Um, in addition to vaccines and quick treatment with Paxlovid, you've also got uh, ample N95 masks so that people can make a determination. What's the risk? What's the benefit? And what do I choose to do so that I can go about my life as healthily and productively as possible? Well, Dr. Frieden, we want to thank you for sharing your insights with us. We want to thank you for all of the great work that you've yes. done in public health uh, over a long career. And thank you to our audience for joining us today, too, for this important conversation. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our updates at chcradio.com. Dr. Frieden, thank you so much again for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. 
Laurie, what have you got for us this week? After a long delay marred by manufacturing troubles, a COVID-19 vaccine from the Maryland-based company Novavax became the fourth such vaccine authorized in the U.S. by the Food and Drug Administration. As of August 17, nearly 12,000 doses of the two-dose vaccine have been administered in the country. The two doses are given three to eight weeks apart, and the vaccine is available in the U.S. to adults and teens ages 12 through 17. The Novavax vaccine is the first to use a protein-based approach commonly used in other vaccines. As with other COVID-19 vaccines, the Novavax vaccine works by triggering an immune response against the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which sits on the surface of the virus and is what the virus uses to enter cells. However, the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines instruct cells in the body to make the spike protein using mRNA instructions. The Novavax vaccine contains the spike proteins. This is similar to the way many vaccines work, including for hepatitis B, influenza, and HPV. As with the other COVID-19 vaccines, there is no way to catch the disease from the Novavax vaccine since it doesn't contain any virus. The primary randomized controlled trial in the U.S. and Mexico was conducted prior to the Omicron variant and included nearly 30,000 adults. The trial showed the Novavax vaccine had a 90.4% efficacy in preventing symptomatic disease at least a week after the second dose. This means the vaccine reduced the risk of developing symptomatic illness by more than 90%. The most common side effects reported in the trials were injection site pain, tiredness, headache, and muscle pain. Cases of myocarditis or pericarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle or its surrounding tissues, were reported in the clinical trials, six cases among vaccine recipients and one case among the placebo group, according to the FDA. The Novavax vaccine isn't available in the U.S. as a booster, but a booster dose has been authorized in Australia. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Access to mental health care remains one of the great unmet health needs around the world, but the problem is particularly acute in Sub-Saharan Africa. In Nigeria, for example, there's roughly one psychiatrist for every five million residents. Yale School of Medicine psychiatry professor Thaddeus Ihancho, a Nigerian native, says there are many reasons. Only 1% of the nation's health budget is actually dedicated to mental health services, but also there's a deep cultural stigma against acknowledging mental health disorders in many African countries. He and his team at Yale developed the Happiness Project. It's a research initiative aimed at increasing access to mental health services by leveraging the power of local primary care clinicians and community health workers who are already providing care in trusted community settings. So our goal is really to train primary care people to treat mental health in communities. 
Dr. Ihanacho says their second goal was to provide a digital and telehealth component, allowing the primary care clinicians, nurses, and patients to gain access to specialists when needed for more pressing diagnoses. The second goal is to utilize telemedicine, mobile technology and telemedicine to connect these primary care centers to specialists. This eliminates a significant barrier for patients in need, a four to six hour journey by road just to see a mental health specialist. That is an impossible trip for most in the region. The Happiness Project, leveraging the power of the existing primary care infrastructure, empowering doctors, nurses, community health workers, and patients with the proper training, tools, and support to access these necessary interventions, eliminating the challenges of travel and distance and lack of clinicians, all to help address a long unmet health need. Now that's a bright idea. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCRadio.com.